right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for um, this day that we can come together. I thank you for this church, Lord. I thank you for this church family, for their prayers, for their concerns, this community here, Lord. Father, we just pray you would continue to grow it. Nourish us. Nurture us, Lord God. And Lord, may we be um, just a clay in your hands, Lord God. Mold us, Lord, and shape us. We pray for your blessing over this time and over this message, Lord. Jesus, may you uh, teach us. May your spirit be here with us today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me adjust this. There's a little bit of an echo. How many of you uh, this morning, you woke up thinking, you, you thought this, and maybe I'm addressing to you husbands here. How many of you husbands here, you woke up and you thought, I hope my wife today tells me I am wrong. Any husbands woke up this morning and said, I hope my wife today tells me how wrong I am today. How many of you wives today, you woke up and you said, if there's one thing I can hear from my husband today, is that he tells me all the faults that I have. Any of you? No? How many of you kids, when I say kids, how many of you youth kids here, you woke up this morning and you said, you know what? If there's one thing I would love my parents to do today, it's to tell me how wrong I am. I hope they tell me all day long all the things I'm doing wrong. Sound good? There's a hand. Who's ever parent that was, you know who you are? There's a hand that went up there. Yeah? How many of you woke up this Sunday, you thought, all right, this Sunday we go to church. I hope that we hear from Pastor Mike about our sin today. How many of you got up and gone to church and said, I hope we hear a message about sin this morning? Any of you th thought of that? No? Nobody? One, two? Yeah, right. School starting, right? Oh, no, let me ask you. It was funny. At the retreat, one of the activities we did, right, and to gain points, and I know I didn't follow through with the points accumulation, but maybe I'll do that, okay? But one of the challenges I had for those who went is for married couples, the spouses, to say, I love you to each other while looking each other in the eyes for more than, was it like three seconds or five seconds? Five seconds. I challenge the siblings to say, I love you to each other while looking at each other in the eyes. Any of you do that? How many of you in your homes... You wished you heard these three words. Which three word phrases do you wish you heard in your house more? I love you or you are wrong. Which phrase do you wish you heard in your house more often? I think we know the answer, right? How many of you, as you're starting school soon, you can't wait to be in class for the teacher to ask you questions, and you can't wait for the moment to raise your hand and give an answer, 
only to hear the teacher to say to you, I'm sorry, you're incorrect. How many love that feeling? Is there a better feeling than raising your hand and answering the teacher in a class and them telling you you're wrong? Don't you love that feeling? Of course not. Right? If we're all, if we share the same uh, feelings and experiences, none of us enjoy the feeling of being wrong. Especially when we have someone tell us we're wrong. Right? Does anyone enjoy having someone come up to you and say, you are wrong. You are wrong for doing this. Right? Some of us have grown really good at proving ourselves right, even if we're wrong. I become a great debater. I can argue my way out of anything. Even when I know I am wrong, I can try to prove myself right. And if I'm not right, I'm going to make sure I sound like I'm right. Right? We grow up with these things. You know, last night we, we went and um, we went out as a family and uh, went to eat. And uh, getting back home from the place where we ate, I made a wrong turn and I thought there was an on-ramp to the freeway and there wasn't one. So I made it, I had to go all the way around and make a U-turn, go all the way back, and I made another turn and that was the wrong turn. And Jamie said, well, let me look it up. I said, no, 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 that's okay. That's okay. I know, how, I, know where I know how to get there. And sure enough, I made another wrong turn. Was I going to say I was wrong? No. Actually, I, I did. But typically, I'm getting older, I'm getting wiser, I'm getting more humble. No, maybe not more humble, but I'm, I'm, I'm wising up to the fact that sometimes I'll make wrong decisions. But sometimes it's very hard for me to say I was wrong, right? We can all experience that. Well, the title of today's message is Confronting Sin. So those of you who raised your hand, you said, I wish Pastor Mike talked about sin, your prayers are answered. Look at that. We're going to talk about confronting sin. I know that's exactly what you wanted to hear today, right? You're thinking nothing will draw people to our church more than talking about sin, right? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the reality is we all want to be right. At least we want to feel like we're right. And we're living in a world today that is emphasizing that you, your feelings, what you believe is right or what you believe is good, that is enough. You pursue what will make you feel good, feel comfortable, and feel right about yourself and that is what you pursue. So we're living in a culture and in, a, in a, uh, the mindset of society that encourages us to just pursue what we believe is right, what is good. But the problem is, there's a, no sense of absolute morality, absolute standard, because no one likes to be told that you are wrong. Of course, we know biblically, God confronts us. He confronts us with sin. He confronts us with, the, with things that are not pleasing to him. And the question is, how do we respond when we're confronted with sin? How do we respond when we're confronted with something that something in us tells us is not right? And we're uncomfortable with that. So we're going to take a look at that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. Now, it's been about a month since we've been in Mark. 
So it's been over four weekends since we've been in Mark. So I'm going to kind of update us and refresh our memories of where we left off in Mark. Mark chapter 6, starting verse 14. Now if you remember, Jesus traveled to his hometown of Nazareth. And he went to Nazareth, and just like he was accustomed to doing, he went to the synagogues to teach in the synagogues. But the people of Nazareth, for the most part, did not receive him well. Many of them knew his family background. They knew where his brothers, his sisters, his parents. And they're like, who gives Jesus, right? Where does he get this authority to teach such things? And they did not, for the most part, accept him. They did not receive Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus was not, did not perform the number of miracles he did in other places, but only laid his hands on a few people. And we see in Mark that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Their unbelief, because their unbelief, Jesus did not do miracles or as many miracles as he would normally have done. And we looked at, at that time, how doubt leads to unbelief, and unbelief leads to rejecting Christ. Now, I think I mentioned at that time, about, you know, four weeks ago, I wonder how many times my unbelief led to me, or limited my experiencing God. I really do believe that. How many times that my lack of faith in God in a situation limited how much I experienced what God can do in a situation. So at that time, the last passage that we looked at, so afterwards Jesus then sends the 12 out to to be extensions of his ministry. Jesus taught them what to do, what to say, how to do it. And he sent them out. And he told them, right, to stay where people receive you, where they go, do not stay where they don't welcome you. If they will not listen, if they not welcome you, then you shake off the dust off your feet and you go elsewhere. How's that? Okay. Okay. Let me start all over. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So Jesus sends out the 12. He instructs them and sends them out. Verse 12, let's pick it up in Mark. It says, And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now let me give you some background. Herod here, Herod Antipas here, 
he was not a true king. He was not a king in the sense that we would think of. He didn't even have the title of king. The region of Judea and Galilee and some of the surrounding regions was still under the authority of the Roman Empire. Okay, so Caesar at the time, he kind of uh, allowed this title of tetrarch or ruler over certain regions. Kind of think of how governors govern our states, right? Among the United States, we're divided into these states, and in these states, they have governors that kind of have authority over those states. So kind of have that picture in mind. Now, this Herod was one of several sons of Herod the Great, who was in power at the time when Jesus was born. And his authority... Herod the Great's authority was still under the rule or authority of Caesar at the time. Okay? Now, in, back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Mark tells us that John was taken into custody, John the Baptist. And thereafter, when John the Baptist was taken into custody, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the gospel. So John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus' ministry, Right? John's imprisonment marked the transition into Jesus' ministry. So Herod, he hears of Jesus' ministry. And he's hearing these things. He's hearing these reports and these miraculous things that are happening. And this leaves Herod wondering, who is this person? What is going on? Some are saying that it's Elijah the prophet. Some are saying it's the, like the Old Testament prophets of, the prophets of old who have come. But Herod, he fears that this is John the Baptist come to life again. He's fearing John the Baptist has resurrected. So you're thinking, what happened to John the Baptist? Let's pick it up. So for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. So Mark is going back to what took place. In prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous, holy man, and kept him safe. And when he had heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me, the, give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter. And gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. What a heartwarming family story. 
And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Now here's a curious passage in Mark, sandwiched between Jesus commissioning and sending the disciples out to minister, and the reports of them coming back from from their ministry, their time of being sent out. Sandwiched there in between is this story, this account of John the Baptist being beheaded. Curious as to why this is in place. Well, going back into the reports, how Jesus instructed the disciples on how to minister, how to conduct themselves, right? How to do the ministry. He gave them the authority to heal and cast out the sick, or not cast out the sick, to heal and cast out the demons, not cast out the sick, right? That wouldn't be good. That's, that's, that's not part of the message. Can you imagine that if I said that? To cast out the sick, right? You're like, uh, what am I doing here, right? That's not what I meant. So Jesus gave that authority. And then afterwards, they're coming back and telling Jesus all that had happened, all that had taken place. Now, can you imagine the stories they must have had? Imagine them coming back to Jesus and saying that all had taken place. If they're like anybody like today, how they, if you know about the disciples, if you read on the disciples, I think the disciples had a little bit of competitiveness between them. Who was better? Who did more? Right? I imagine the scenario when the disciples came back. I can't tell this is check out what happened. We went to this person and they were like, they had a fever for days. We anointed them with oil, and they were, gone, they were healed. Isn't that amazing? They're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That sounds awesome. But check out what happened to us. There was someone who couldn't walk since they were young. Anointed them with oil, and they stood up, and they started to walk. They're like, oh, yeah, well, well, that's great. But you know what? When we started to preach of repentance, you know what happened? Ten people came and said, oh, I'm guilty. What do I do? And they came and confessed their sin. Isn't that amazing? And then another pair of disciples, yeah, that'd be great. But guess what happened to me? We went. Not only did we heal, we casted out some demons, and they repented. Right? I imagine these stories of, of people, they're saying, exchanging all the things that have happened. If you've been around people who have been in ministry, this kind of happens sometimes. Right? They kind of compare stories. I don't, I'm going to kind of blow the cover on some pastors. When pastors come together sometimes, it's kind of funny. When they share about ministry sometimes, they share about something good. And then it compels another pastor to say, oh, well, you know what happened? Yeah, this happened too. And they say this story, and it's kind of a little bit more amazing than the other one. And then another pastor, oh, yeah, that's great. I had this experience too. Except it was like 300 people. Whoa. That's amazing stuff. So you, I, I picture this scenario, and I'm imagining, right? The disciples are sharing all that has taken place. But what's interesting about Jesus, he recognized an important lesson. They were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. And what does Jesus do here? He recognizes the need for rest and solitude. For rest 
and for Saul. He said, let's go to a solitary place and rest. I appreciate this, what Jesus is doing here. You know, we all have physical bodies, right? But our, we aren't just physical bodies. We have a mental aspect of us, emotional aspect of us, a spiritual aspect of us, right? And each is affected with the other. Our physical bodies are affected by our mental processes, right? Our emotions. When we're feeling particularly emotional, physically we feel it, right? With stress or joy. And it's all affected. It's all intertwined. And spiritually, the same as well. When we're affected spiritually, our bodies are affected. Our minds are expected or affected. Our emotions are affected. It's all intertwined. And when we do ministry, the effective work is spiritual, right? If we do any ministry that's good or effective for God, that is God doing the work. It's a spiritual work. But that doesn't mean our physical bodies aren't affected. Our emotions aren't affected. I remember when early on in ministry, I felt that I always had to be in ministry mode. Always on call. When I was a youth pastor, I was like glued to the computer screen in case a youth member wanted to chat over instant message. Yeah, that was like way back, right? Remember AOL, instant messenger? I had to always be on call. And I never felt like I can rest from ministry. But rest is so important, particularly in ministry. It's so important to take care of ourselves when we're in ministry because that time of rest, it's helpful for us to take a step back and rest. And I think in that time of rest, God helps us to kind of put things in perspective when we're in ministry, to take some time to rest in ministry. Perhaps we see things a little bit differently. Perhaps it humbles us. Because when we don't rest in ministry, you know what happens? We end up trying to rely on our own abilities. We rely on our own strength. We get into the mode where, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I know what to do. Boom, 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 boom. And we don't take a time to stop and rest and allow God to kind of refocus ourselves sometimes, to see things a little bit differently. I encourage us as this church, for those of you who are serving, for those of you who are in council leaders, I've told you, I want to encourage you all to have times of rest from ministry. To take that time, let God to refresh not only your spirit, but your body, your mind, your heart. And as a church, for those of us who are, for those of you who aren't serving now, you need to help with that. Right? Those who are in leadership who've been serving for years, they need to rest. That means we need other people to be ready to serve, be ready to take positions of leadership so that we can have people give them time to rest. So Jesus gives an important lesson. When the disciples come back, he gives them time to rest. Now let's go back to the passage. Now in the middle of this report is the report, this graphic account of John the Baptist's death. Now Herod Antipas, he oversaw the region of Galilee, and he was married to Herodias. And as you can imagine, they were both descendants of Herod the Great. Herod had many sons. Herod the Great had many sons. Antipas and Philip was among the many sons that he had. 
Antipas and Philip were half-brothers, okay? They had different mothers. And Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. He was the daughter of a different son of Herod, all right? Aristobulus. And Herodias was given in marriage by Herod the Great to Philip after Herod had Aristobulus, his son, executed. This is a great family. Talk about family values here. It gets worse, right? Philip and Herodias had a daughter named Salome. I almost said Salome. (laughs) Salome. And she ended up marrying her uncle named Philip, a different Philip. Now, Antipas was married to a daughter of a Nabataean king. He divorced her and married Herodias, his brother's wife, who would be his former, his the brother's former wife. So yes, Herodias married two of her uncles. She was married to three sons of Herod at different times. And Herodias' daughter, Salome, also married an uncle. So here is an interesting family dynamic. You kind of think, you look at entertainment today, the movies and TV shows, you think, man... This is some crazy stories. Where do they get this garbage from? Ever heard the phrase, truth is stranger than fiction? Have you realized some of the most demented, weird stories and movies you've seen is based on true stories? It's kind of crazy. But here is the scenario. Here's what's taking place. So Herod hears the reports of what Jesus is doing and fears that this is John the Baptist coming back to life. Because John the Baptist spoke out against Herod and his wife's marriage. He says, this is unlawful. This isn't right. You're marrying your brother's wife, and he's still alive. So Herodias, she wanted John the, best, John the Baptist dead, executed. Get rid of her. She's being confronted with this. She doesn't want anyone to say that she's wrong, that her marriage is sinful, or wasn't right. He says, get rid of him. But Herod feared getting rid of John the Baptist because his reputation. The people saw him. He must be a holy man, a righteous man. He's, he's innocent. What is he doing wrong? He doesn't want an uprising under his authority. So he feared putting him to death. So he protected, he imprisoned him, but he did not execute him yet. So what happens? One day, Herod's celebrating his birthday, and he's having a birthday bash. And he invites a whole bunch of leaders and dignitaries, authorities, and I'm sure the alcohol's flowing, and I'm sure they've been partying for a while. And he invites Herodias to come dance and entertain him and his guests. And she did such a great job of whatever that looked like. And Herod said, oh, you did so wonderful. Look, You tell me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Parents, have you ever said that to your kids and then like a second later regretted that? Right? Parents, be careful what you you promise your children, right? Herodias probably was not in the right frame of mind because when he, Herodias or Salome is dancing, he says, just tell me what you want, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you even half my kingdom. His kingdom wasn't even his to give. But that's what happened. So what does Salome do? She goes back to his mom and says, 
What should I ask for? So Herodias, she gets ahead in the game. No pun intended. What does she say? I want the head of John the Baptist. So what does she do? What a lovely daughter. What a mother-daughter bonding moment, right? Anything you want, she says, I want this man taken out. I don't want to hear it anymore. So he sends her daughter, and the daughter goes to Herod and says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now Herod's in a pickle. He promised his daughter anything. And he has these guests here. And he's trying to save face. He has pride. Can he go back on his word? Can he be a coward in front of his friends and these leaders and say, I can't do that. So what does he do? He gets John the Baptist executed. Delivers the head of John the Baptist. Now, Mark's inclusion in this, the the placement in this account is kind of interesting, right? Jesus just sends the disciples. Herod is hearing these reports, and then we have the story of John the Baptist, how he died, and then this report of the disciples coming back and telling what had taken place. It's kind of interesting. And if you know Scripture, maybe you might see some similarities of John the Baptist and another person in the Bible, Elijah the prophet. And I'm not the only one who can notice these observations. There's many who have written about these similarities, this experience of John the Baptist and Elijah the prophet. Right? Both were messengers to these wicked kings who had perhaps even more wicked wives. And both these wives wanted these messengers of God dead. Right? Jezebel wanted Elijah dead. And Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead. And John the Baptist would be this forerunner to Jesus. And we see some similarities of John the Baptist's experience with Jesus, right? John's death stands out as a message to the people. The religious leaders, they didn't accept John the Baptist's message. They're curious, who is this guy? Why is he saying these things? But they feared the people's reaction as well, just like Jesus. The religious leaders heard what Jesus was doing, but they feared acting towards Jesus because of the people. What do we do? John the Baptist died, innocent of any charge. We saw that Jesus also was put to death, innocent. Of course, John wasn't the sacrifice that Jesus would be, but even still, this theme of righteousness being rejected by wickedness. So it's interesting, this placement of the story of this account of John the Baptist. I think there's two things, two themes that we can take away from John, this account of John the Baptist here in Mark. The first thing is the rejection of Jesus' work and ministry, and the second thing, second thing, the response when confronting with sin. We see how Jesus was rejected. His message was rejected. In Luke 4, if you remember some weeks ago, Luke, Luke expands on this account when Jesus goes to Nazareth. And he cites, and the people question him, right? 
And they ask him, you know, who is this guy? And Jesus brings them back to the time of Elijah. When Elijah spoke against the idolatry of that time. And at that time, God, God ministered and helped this poor widow, but the other Israelites were not rescued in their time of need. And the people were offended by what Jesus was saying, and so much so that they wanted to throw him off the cliff. So when we see this report and this, this idea of what happened to John the Baptist, here's John the Baptist being put to death for righteousness' sake. This message of repentance. John the Baptist called the people to repentance. Herod refused to repent. Jesus comes onto the scene. This message again, the message of repentance. But we see just as Herod rejected the message from John the Baptist, we're going to see he also will reject Jesus. We're not going to see Herod again till later on when he sees Jesus. Jesus will be before Herod, but that's when Herod, Jesus was arrested. And Herod has an opportunity to release Jesus, but he doesn't. Jesus is mocked, and he's beaten, and sent back over to Pilate to be crucified. So it's an interesting parallel here in this account. But there's a response when confronting with sin that we see here. Repentance was foundational, John's message, and foundational in Jesus' message. Now, if we were to play Family Feud, how many of you played Family Feud before? Or you watched the show, right? They give the category. If I was to give you the categories of name a reason why to reject the gospel message, or why you're offended by the gospel message, perhaps the number one reason people would say is sin. I don't want to repent. I don't like the idea that I have to change. I don't want to feel guilty. Right? Herodias hated John because she was called out. We don't like being told what we're doing is wrong. We don't like telling other people what they're doing is wrong. Believe it or not, parents don't like or should not enjoy telling their kids what they're doing is wrong. But perhaps the most loving thing we can do to someone, or for someone, I should say, is to tell them what they're doing is wrong. Maybe the most loving thing we can do is to steer someone away from what they're doing is leading to their destruction and lead them to God. Now, it's important we have to be sensitive to this. So there may be some times when God is going to lead you to be bold with somebody. He may put you in a position to tell somebody, look, what you're doing isn't good. It's not right. There may be some times that God's going to put you in a position that he's going to ask you to build a rapport with somebody, gain their trust, so that they can trust you, so that when you share with them what they're doing is wrong, you can do so and they can receive it, knowing that you really care for them. Sometimes God may put you in a position that you're not saying something, but they're going to see your actions. They're going to see what you do compared to other people. 
And God's going to convict them about what they're doing is wrong. And they're going to see that as a witness. However way God may put you in a position, we need to understand that it's important. It's crucial. Now, I've shared before that I don't like going to the dentist, right? Any of you enjoy going to the dentist? Can you imagine if I went to the dentist and I had a bad cavity that needed to be taken out? That if it wasn't taken out, it'd be infected and that infection would spread throughout all of my other teeth and my gums. And the dentist saw that. But the dentist knew I hated going to the dentist. I would fear it. And the dentist would think, oh, poor Mike. He's going to hate that news. He's going to hate that I'm going to tell him that his teeth are rotten and they need to be taken out. I don't think I should tell him. That's going to hurt his feelings. That's going to make him sad. He's not going to want to come back. How many of you would love that from your dentist? Of course not. Of course not. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth is not enjoyable to hear, but sometimes that's what we need to hear. Sometimes we've become so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable that we will mask our discomfort with what will cause us more discomfort. I'll say that again. We've become so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable that we'll mask our discomfort with what will only cause us more discomfort. Do you think about that? When if we don't enjoy, if we don't like something about ourselves, we're uncomfortable about ourselves. We're so uncomfortable with that. We don't like it, whatever it may be, that we feel like we have to change something. We have to do something, right? But then what we use to try to mask that discomfort only hurts us even more. Sometimes when we're confronted with sin and that sin makes us uncomfortable, we don't like feeling uncomfortable, we don't like feeling guilty, so what do we do? We go to something that will cover and mask that sense of feeling guilty so that we don't feel guilty anymore. We don't like the feeling of discomfort, but instead of going to God that's the source of truth that's going to help us, We go away from God and we listen to other voices. We listen to other things and we mask that discomfort with only more discomfort. I'm going to cut this message short. I'm going to skip a passage. I have some slides in Romans. I'm going to say this. The dangers, and I cover this at the retreat, The dangers of pursuing our pleasures, the dangers of listening to the world, is that when we pursue our pleasures, what we want, and do it the way we want it, or we listen to the world, it takes us further away from God. And what it ends up doing, it ends up hardening our hearts. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we perceive God. And we become desensitized to God. We become desensitized to conviction. Because we get so used to covering it and running away from it, avoiding it. And I want to challenge us that if God is speaking to you, 
Don't run away from it. Don't cover it. I want to challenge those of you who are starting school. I pray for you all. Because you are entering a battlefield. You may be a minority. And I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm talking about as faith. And you're going to be pressured to be like everybody else, to think like everybody else, to see yourself like everybody else tells you to. And there may be times when you're confronted with sin, and how will you respond to that conviction? How do you respond to that? Adults, when you go to your workplaces, when you're all around, we're confronted with that. And we can't become so desensitized that we lose sense of God's conviction. Skip to the last slide if you can. I'll end with this. 1 John 1, 9 and 10. Here's our hope in Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God does not want to leave us feeling guilty, burdened with sin. If we confess our sins before him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is the hope that we need to have and exhibit to those who don't know him. They don't have to bear that burden of sin and guilt and shame. And neither do you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your love for us. That, Lord, when we're confronted with sin or being wrong, you don't leave us to be led astray. You desire us to come to you, desire us to repent, to recognize that where we're going and what we're doing is wrong. And you want to draw us to you, Lord God. Lord, I pray that when we are confronted with our sin, when we are confronted with things that are wrong, things that make us uncomfortable about who we are or what we're doing, Lord, may we come before you, Lord Jesus, the one who truly loves us and knows us. And may we seek you, Lord God, for healing, for forgiveness, and cleansing, Lord God. We lift this to you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.